the Read to Lead podcast, episode eight. Hey, what's up? This is Pat Flynn from smartpassiveincome.com, the Smart Passive Income podcast and author of the book, Let Go. I so encourage you to listen to the Read to Lead podcast with Jim, Jim, wait, is it Jim? No, Jason, Jeff Brown. Listen to Read to Lead with Jeff Brown. You will not regret it. For the most part, people undersell what they already have. And they look at what they don't have and say, if only I had that, that would then solve my problem. Welcome to the Read to Lead podcast with Jeff Brown. Jeff believes that if you desire to achieve true success in business and in life, then consistent and intentional reading is a must. The Read to Lead podcast will not only help you narrow this ever important reading list, but also bring you key insights and valuable feedback from some of today's most successful and inspiring authors. And now here's Jeff. Thanks for coming back. The first month of the Read to Lead podcast is officially in the books, and it's gone very, very well, and I have you to thank for that. If you've reviewed the podcast, if you've rated it in iTunes, thank you very much. If you've shared it with friends, I owe a lot to you. As you know, my goal is to help you develop a more intentional and consistent reading habit because I believe reading is essential to your success. And speaking of success, that's going to be the focus of our topic today as we talk with G. Richard Shell. He's a professor at the Wharton School, and his new book, Springboard, Launching Your Personal Search for Success, just released this past Thursday. He's going to help us answer the questions, what is success for you, and how can you achieve it? But first, this episode is brought to you by Audible. If you especially like what you hear today from Richard and his new book, Springboard. You can get it for free uh, before this episode is is even over just by going to readtoleadpodcast.com slash audible. There you can sign up for a free 30-day trial and get your very first download absolutely free. Now, this is not an offer that's available on their website. You have to go to this special URL. One more time, it's readtoleadpodcast.com slash audible. Richard Schell is the Thomas Garrity Professor of Legal Studies, Business Ethics, and Management at the Wharton School. He is an acclaimed teacher and creator of Wharton's popular success course. And his previous books include the award-winning Bargaining for Advantage, Negotiation Strategies for Reasonable People, a mouthful, and The Art of Woo, Using Strategic Persuasion to Sell Your Ideas, a book he co-wrote. His latest book is based on that Wharton success course and is titled Springboard, Launching Your Personal Search for Success. And he's our guest today. Richard, welcome to the Read to Lead podcast. Thank you, Jeff. It's a pleasure to be on. Well, I, as I was reading the book, found your your journey from your college years into your 20s and 30s quite fascinating. And I'd like you to give uh, the Read to Lead Nation some insight into how you came to settle into your career at the ripe old age of 37. (laughs) Uh, thanks, Jeff. Uh, one always appreciates being asked to talk about oneself, so I, uh, <laughs> I'll take that. My uh, my journey to my current situation was a, a very roundabout one, and I think for that reason, uh, I I uh, I'm a role model for anyone who thinks that 
you know, they're taking a long time to get to where they need to go. Uh, just needs to t- see how long it took me to get where I am. I, uh, I was uh, born into a military family. Uh, my father was a general in the United States Marine Corps. My grandfather was an officer in the Army on his side and in the Navy on my mother's side. I was um, destined to, um, to be a military officer, and I started college on a Navy scholarship. And um, and I'm of the generation that confronted the Vietnam War. And as my college years progressed and the Vietnam War escalated, I became more and more inclined to think that we were not doing the right thing in that war and that we oughtn't to be there. And that created quite a crisis uh, for me personally because I was on a Navy scholarship and also within my family because my whole family tradition had been military straight through. And here I was standing up and saying, uh, we, we ought to do it a different way. So I ended up becoming a pacifist, uh, a, a Vietnam War, war protester. Uh, I, uh, I had a, a severe break with my family over that. And I think this can happen to people at, for many reasons and, it, and for a lots of different stages of their life. It can happen if you're divorced or if you have a career break. When you no longer wake up recognizing who you are, then you are experiencing what I experienced. Mm. The narrative thread of my life had been cut by my dispute over this um, tragic war that we were in, and I just found myself flapping and and very unable to organize my thoughts about the future. So that crisis uh, led me to um, a a long journey, uh, and it included working in the ghettos of Washington, D.C. as a social worker. It included traveling around the world for several years and investigating lots of different uh, aspects of religion, and um, it was uh, a long and, and very difficult period of my life. But at the end, uh, I, it's a happy ending. At the end, I managed to put myself back together again. I reconciled with my family. I actually lived in their basement when I was in my 30s uh, in a small town in Virginia, and they welcomed me home. I was a prodigal son. Um, and uh, and so I, I ended up getting to know both my parents much, much more intimately as a result of uh, that, all that than I probably had ever known them before. And then, um, and then I just gradually started doing what I talk about in the book, which is trying to investigate what I could do well or better than most and following um, some career tracks that would emphasize those skills and, and then finding my way uh, one step at a time uh, to a teaching career, which is what I entered into when I was 37 here at the University of Pennsylvania in the Wharton School of Business. And I've been here ever since and uh, gradually uh, making the situation here into one where I could teach what I'm now writing about. And that's uh, uh, really about things that mean, mean a lot to me. What is meaningful work? Uh, how can you define success for yourself? How can you mentor others in helping them achieve what they think uh, uh, success might mean for them? Uh, and so it's been a, a long journey. My first books, as you mentioned, are about persuasion and negotiation, both, both very important skills and tools in negotiation uh, in business and in life. This book is a prequel to those two books. This is a this is a book about setting the right life goals. 
so that when you negotiate and persuade, you're advancing toward the goals that you most believe in. What I love is that uh, even though we're not students at the Wharton School, we get to kind of take the class by, by following along in this book. Uh, as for the book, which I love, share first how, you, how you've chosen to break it up, the two key questions that, that must be answered. It's a, uh, I, I'm primarily, I see my calling as a teacher. And uh, I'd reached a point in my career um, uh, of having taught for quite a while and, um, and then given the degree of freedom to create a course. And I asked myself, what's the perfect course that I could teach? And, um, and I came up with this sort of uh, life goals kind of uh, subject matter. But then I thought, what's the best way to help people get at this subject in a way that would be unique for each of them? Because I don't believe anyone should follow my path, and I don't believe anyone has the right to hold themselves up as some sort of supermodel that other people um, ought to follow. I think it's our job to help others uh, come to terms with their own lives. And so the two questions that I ended up uh, settling on as the best way to evoke the best kind of thinking on uh, what your future ought to be are these. First, what for me is success? What do I mean by that word? And then secondly, once you've come to some thoughts about that, what is my unique best way to achieve it? And so those two questions are the questions I challenge my students with uh, from the first class to the last, and uh, that's what I challenge the reader to think about from the first to the last chapter. The first half of the book is devoted to helping them think about this question, what is success? What does it mean? Could it be happiness? Could it be uh, status? Could it be fame? Could it be fortune? And then the second half of the book is uh, helping them think with some ideas about what their goals might be. Uh, well, what are some uh, unique ways that I could achieve those goals using my strengths and talents? So the second half asks questions like, what do I do better than most? Um, uh, uh, how can I learn to fail? Uh, which is really a chapter on how to find self-confidence. And uh, what are my social skills and how can I advance uh, my ideas using other people as uh, part of the team that I want to assemble? Starting with the end in mind in that first half, uh, right? Because only if we know what success is for us can we begin to build goals around that. And then understanding better how to make progress toward them is the second half. Exactly. Well, I had a lot of eye-opening moments uh, reading this book. One of them uh, was early on when you lay out the six lives exercise in chapter one. Uh, describe what that is and what it's designed to do and, and the balance you have to strike between the two sides of success. Sure. Sure. Uh, it, it was, this is a classroom exercise, but it's really easy to take, and it takes about five minutes to do um, in the book. And the book is full, you know, I fill the book with um, uh, essentially, you know, self-assessments and diagnostics and thought experiments that the reader can then, you know, reflect on and take their own ideas from. So, so this is a little, um, a little short exercise. I give six short profiles of six different people. Um, one's a teacher, one's a, 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 a finance guy making money on Wall Street. Another one is a stonemason who works as a, a, a bricklayer and stonemason. Uh, another one is um, a tennis pro. And uh, there's six of them. And then I ask, and they're just short vignettes, like a paragraph each. Then I ask uh, the reader to rank them from most to least successful. Which life strikes you as the most successful and which strikes you as the least successful? 
And every vignette has a little bit about what they do for work, a little bit about their family life and situation, a little bit about uh, what their interests and passions are. So uh, by forcing people to rank them, I'm getting people to think about how they strike the balance between the two big parts of success, which are internal and external. The internal side of success being happiness, fulfillment, satisfaction, family, uh, and the outside part of success being uh, achievement, recognition, um, uh, status, accomplishments in society. And there's always a balance, and different people strike it in different places. So this this uh, little exercise gives everyone a chance to see kind of, as of today, uh, what are they thinking about these two sides of success and uh, which ones are driving them and which ones are they neglecting and which ones uh, really ought they to pay more attention to. You talk about uh, later on, I think it's in chapter two, about momentary happiness versus overall happiness and then go on to to talk about what you've dubbed wisdom experiences and the positive value of negative emotions. What, what are wisdom experiences and, and how, how can negative emotions be turned to be a positive thing? Sure. Um, great question. The, um, most people, when they, when they say the word happiness, think of it as a sort of positive emotional state. Uh, so, you know, you feel happy, it's your birthday, and you're blowing out the candles. Uh, and that is very much uh, an important meaning of the word happiness, but um, but it's not the only meaning, and it, and it's probably not the meaning that you are looking for when you think about success as a kind as an idea. So I I kind of uh, try to try to give give people a chance to think a little more deeply about what they're trying to achieve in in life when they use the word happiness, and overall happiness is a sort of retrospective look if you if you. Uh, if you lived in San Francisco for five years and then moved to New York and someone asked you, were, were you happy in San Francisco? That would be an assessment of sort of overall happiness in San Francisco. It's partly emotional. It's partly mixed up with a lot of different things that might have happened there. But you sort of have a plus or a minus. And that's a very important dimension of happiness because it summarizes a lot of, uh, of experience in a, in a single perception. The wisdom experiences, though, are... I think the most important kinds of happiness and the difference with a wisdom experience as a form of happiness is it's the difference between feeling happy blowing out the candles on your birthday cake and feeling happy at the birth of your first child. Um, the kind of experience I'm talking about there is something that you feel connection with the circle of life or with nature or with uh, a divine spirit or something beyond yourself that fills you with a sense of uh, joy, of, uh, of integration, of love. And that's the kind of happiness I think that is uh, the most important of all when uh, you're talking about a word like success. Because I think if you have a life that lacks any of that, uh, I think the success you're achieving is probably only one-dimensional. I think it's probably going to be almost entirely in the achievement side, and the internal side has been somehow neglected. So the third kind of happiness is the deepest form, I think. And uh, I think it's something that um, 
most of us need to pay more attention to and uh, and appreciate more. I love the uh, simple but uh, yet profound uh, lottery exercise in Chapter 3. Uh, share a bit about how we come to have these unconscious assumptions about success and what those assumptions are likely to be based on. Sure. I, I think when I teach uh, about success, this is often a real eye-opener for people um, because a lot, especially at a place like the University of Pennsylvania, the Wharton School, it's very high achievement, sort of elite educational thing, and people have been working very hard their whole lives to get here. And and uh, and I come along and I say to them, well, it's wonderful that you're here. Um, whose idea was it? Mm. Uh, and how much of this is your plan, and how much of it is someone else's plan? And um, and you see the look in people's eyes when uh, they achieve something that they were supposed to achieve. Uh, they got into graduate school, or they got a job that they uh, everybody wanted. They thought they should have. But then internally, they don't feel a, a great sense of accomplishment or satisfaction. And that's when you know that you've been living someone else's life. You've, you've been uh, working based on either cultural assumptions about what success means, and so you've been you know, striving as hard as possible to you know, be someone that would be in the newspaper or someone that would uh, you know, have an interview on television. Uh, or you've been working very hard to achieve a family expectation of success. Everybody said, you know, you're not a success unless you're a doctor or you're not a success unless you're a, a, a lawyer or a business person. And then you get it uh, uh, and you feel empty or you don't get it and you feel like a failure. And in neither case is that feeling warranted because you never did the job of setting the goals yourself. So the lottery exercise is really designed to help people get past the the basic expectation-based thoughts of success and start digging into what they themselves might think. And it goes really simply like this. Assume that you've won uh, a major lottery, $200 million is now in your bank account. Assume that um, you've taken care of your family, all the things that you would normally do if you had uh, come into great wealth and you set up a trust fund to make sure your kids get educated or your nephews or nieces and the people you love. So you've done all the things that duty and, uh, and love would require you to do for those that are close to you. Now, what would you do next? And uh, would you want to be an entrepreneur? Would you use your money to start a businesses? Would you want to be a philanthropist and use your money to help fund healthcare in the developing world or in your neighborhood? Would you want to teach? A lot of people that I meet who are at really, you know, very successful places in the achievement sense come to me and they say, Richard, is there a chance that I could teach? I feel like that would bring me more satisfaction than getting another paycheck from my law firm or my business. Uh, so when you, when you ask that question honestly, what would you do and think about it? And don't just give one answer. Think about it today. Talk to people. Think about it tomorrow. That often can reveal to you something about the direction you ought to be taking, even without the lottery. Um, and all of us have bills to pay, so we have to, you know, the lottery is a fantasy. But, but nevertheless, some part of our day can be devoted to doing something we find meaningful and uh, that 
you know, would give us a sense of greater fulfillment or satisfaction. And that lottery exercise gives you a chance to experiment a little with something you might probably be able to do starting tomorrow uh, in terms of, uh, you know, uh, thinking about starting a business or finding a way to mentor or teach people uh, or uh, reach out to help people in some way that is uh, in, in your local community. So, uh, so that's, that's a, a way to begin defining success for yourself, uh, both the respect you'll get for doing something well and the satisfaction you'll get from doing it. I'm familiar with the, uh, the Venn diagram that you lay out in Chapter 4, I think it is. You've got uh, the one circle is you know, the things that you're good at. Another circle is uh, things that, that you're passionate about. The third circle is you know, what is it people will reward you for. And then sort of where they all three intersect is where you find the meaningful work. And you've, you've developed this acronym that you lay out in that chapter for the seven foundations of meaningful work. Can you take a moment or two and briefly to describe each of those for us? Absolutely. I'd love to. The, um, uh, that intersection uh, comes from a book that many of your listeners may be familiar with. I mean, it's an adaption of Jim Collins's uh, work in Good to Great. It's a great business book. And those same, same three circles can help a business find the sweet spot where, uh, where they're going to uh, create the most value. In a personal life, in the, in the sense of meaningful work, the acronym I use to sort of help people begin thinking about where they might find meaning in their work is uh, the acronym PERFECT, P-E-R-F-E-C-T. Uh, and so if you're searching for perfect work, it means you're probably looking for work that would have some dimensions uh, that, uh, that the, these letters stand for. So the P stands for personal learning and development. A lot of people find meaning in their work because it uh, allows them to grow as a person and learn uh, more about the world, themselves, and others. Um, the E stands for entrepreneurial independence and a sense of autonomy and control. And a lot of people find meaning in their work uh, because they're able to do it themselves, to have control over it, to see the beginning, the middle, and the end of a project. Steve Jobs is very much in that mode. A lot of entrepreneurs are. Uh, so uh, you can find meaning in your work by gaining more autonomy over some part of it. The R stands for religious commitment. A lot of people find meaning uh, through uh, the aspects of their religion that they're able to implement through their uh, work and their interactions with others. So you don't have to be doing religious work to be able to live the commandments of your faith uh, in a deep and meaningful way in your work environment, and a lot of people are able to generate meaning in their work by connecting the religious and the uh, workday environment. That's uh, that's P-E-R, and then F is for family. Um, Many people find uh, a great deal of meaning in the pride they take in being uh, providers for their family, in uh, being able to uh, support and advance the goals of their children and their spouse, and um, almost any kind of work um, that's honorable can provide meaning when you think about it as a means for uh, playing the role uh, that uh, your family needs you to play. Uh, so that's the F. And then the last three, E-C-T, so P-E-R-F-E-C-T. E is expressiveness. Uh, people have uh, needs to be expressive. It could be in, in uh, art. It could be in design. It could be in writing. Uh, 
self-expression is a tremendous way to gain meaning in your work. And um, and again, Steve Jobs, another example, he was a great designer of technology and expressed his own aesthetic by the way he uh, specced out products. And I think he got a lot of meaning out of his work that way. Uh, C is for community and service. So, um, you know, again, if you're working in, a, in any kind of service environment, whether it's in a, a hospital, in a social work, in education, in, um, in community, uh, a lot of people get tremendous amounts of, of feelings of self-worth and meaning from their ability to help others. And then finally, T, the last one, is talent-based excellence. So, there's actually a, a guy at MIT that I have for this uh, model. Um, he's, a, he's an engineer, and he said, hey, you know, it's, finding meaning at work is not about uh, identifying meaning and then go doing it. It's actually becoming excellent at something, and then that excellence provides you with the foundation for finding meaning in what you do. And I think that's a perfectly sound approach. Um, if uh, you get really, really good at something and people start respecting you for it and you're able to mentor and teach others at it, um, then I think you can find meaning in your work by the excellence that you display in the way in which you do it and how you help others. So I think each of those can be an independent foundations, but I think many people patch together more than one. You can be motivated and find meaning uh, from uh, being an expressive person who's providing for their family and who's the best at what they do in their group. And all those will be renewal sources for you to want to wake up, to be excited about going to work, uh, and, uh, and to make meaning out of the work that you do. That question was really a test to see if you'd actually remember all those. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I didn't figure you'd have a problem with that at all. You got an A-plus, by the way. Okay, thank you. <laughs> you say in Chapter 5 that success starts with that thing you do better than most, and, and you say that success often comes from building on what you already know and know how to do. So why then do you think that figuring it all out for ourselves is so hard? Well, <laughs> that's fascinating. Great question. You know, if, if you uh, go into a room uh, uh, of people and they're all standing around, you know, at a social occasion, uh, most people look around the room and go, wow, look at all these other people. They're so successful. They look so confident. They look so, me, I'm just a miserable, unconfident, uh, poor soul over here, lost. I hope someone will find a minute to talk to me. I'm, you know, who am I? So I think, for the most part, people undersell what they already have. And they look at what they don't have and say, if only I had that, that would then solve my problem. And I think the real uh, success in life comes from looking in your own backyard and saying, hey, you know what? All those people who are good at something, they're good at something because they had an aptitude for it. And they discovered that aptitude and they nurtured that aptitude. They found role models and people to help teach them bring out that aptitude. And they spent time on it. They were willing to go out and practice it and fail at it and go back and practice some more. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, it, it just has to be true that your talents are internal. They're from your genes or from your family. They're from early role models that you had in life that gave you a sense of excitement and a feeling of accomplishment when you're able to achieve certain things. And that's where you need to look to start the journey of becoming excellent at whatever you're going to do next. I mean, I'm a big believer in learning, and when I started teaching at the Wharton School, I'd never taught before, 
And I was terrified, and I didn't know if I'd be any good at it. And the first thing I did was go watch some great teachers teach just to feel how they were doing it. And then I took my own first hesitant steps, and the first time it didn't work out so well. But now, I'm, you know, I, I've one of the few people who's won the teaching award here at Wharton in every division. Uh, <laughs> And I love doing it, and it's my calling in life. I really feel like I'm alive the most when I'm in front of a group of people and I'm trying to help them learn something. And it all came from uh, I had an aptitude. I was I was raised in the military. Uh, that meant we moved every single year. I was alive from first to eighth grade. I had to adjust socially very rapidly to my environment as a result of that. I learned how to pick up cues from people. That's a teaching skill. Uh, someone else taught me how to tell a story. Uh, that's a teaching skill. I I uh, I had aptitudes, but I had to you know go out and take some chances to to uh, explore them and 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 uh, bring them out. So, but it definitely starts inside. And and even if you if it's if you don't have a psychologist that can sit around and tell you where this is your aptitude and that's your aptitude, you do have your own discernment of what you enjoy, of what gives you energy instead of taking it away. And make notes. Take a week and just take notes. What parts of my day energized me? And then start patching together the profile of what kind of work might allow me to patch these things together. And don't, if you can eliminate status from your criteria and just look at functions, you may find that. Uh, there's a story I tell in the book of a guy who has a Harvard MBA. He's found his life's calling as a police detective and just threw away uh, the, a business career that he could have easily had based on his accomplishments and his, and his education. But he gains a tremendous satisfaction by piecing together the bits of his personality that, that being a police officer allows him to use every day to help people, to accomplish a sense of justice, to put the bad guys in jail, to experience the excitement of danger. All those things are part of a police officer's life, but they're not part of a, uh, a business consultant's life. And that's what he was doing before. So, so that discernment, that listening to yourself can often really uh, be the best source for you know, what, what you're going to be the best at. Uh, the second half of the book explores uh, motivation and specifically motivational balance between what you call inner satisfaction and, and the outer rewards. Uh, contrast those two for us, if you would, and why they're both important. Sure. Uh, you know, it, there's a lot of books about success uh, these days, and uh, I've read almost all of them. That's part of what you get to do when you're a professor. Mm-hmm. And the, the rage these days is do what you love. Um, and I've been talking about that to an extent. Uh, the uh, and I think that's crucial, and and that's called intrinsic motivation. That is things you do because you want to do them. They're not because of what you get paid. They're not because of uh, how famous you'll get. They, you just in, you're in, in absorbed when you're doing those things. And that intrinsic motivation is what I call the long-term fuel. If you can find things that allow you to be intrinsically motivated, you're going to want to do them every day. You're going to want to learn more. But I think there's a, another side to motivation that the, these recent books 
do sell short, and that is extrinsic motivation. And extrinsic motivation is the rewards you get for doing something. The reward may be financial, it may be recognition, it may be comp- a competition where you get to you know win something or feel like you came in first. And the uh, extrinsic motivation, which if it's overdone, is a death trap because you know you're 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 just on a little wheel like a hamster running, 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 <laughs> trying to get the reward. But but if you use it right, it's like um, turbocharging. So uh, you know you've got a good fuel, you've got a good car, you can stay on the road for a long time. But now you need to to charge it up for a sprint and. Extrinsic motivation is an excellent source of energy for that. That's why athletes love to be in championship games. Uh, that's why uh, you know businesses love to uh, try to uh, win a contest uh, for selling the most or being the best in their industry. It charges people up. It gives them focus. It gives them a sense of excitement. And it's temporary, but it is really um, uh hard charging uh, form of energy to use if you use it right. So I think the two together are why we got to the moon. Uh, uh, they're why uh, the iPhone is a, a very an amazing product. Uh, they, the people that did it were engineers who were intrinsically motivated by the elegance of what they were doing, but they were in a competitive race to create a uh, a new instrument to make phone calls on that was, you know, up against a global market, and they won that race, and they and they uh, they got it out sooner, better, uh, and more reliably because of the extrinsic motivation. So I think in your personal life, I think there's a role for both, and I think uh, balancing them is the secret to to getting a lot more done, and as well as sustaining the effort that you have. I so identified with, uh, kind of unfortunately, though it did have a happy ending, with the story in Chapter 7 of a former student named Linda and how she suffered from self-handicapping. Uh, talk about what that is and, and these two kinds of self-confidence you call Level 1 confidence and Level 2 confidence. Sure. Um, you know, one of the most important things successful people know about is how to fail. And uh, I think... Uh, very often, the fear of failure is what keeps people from taking the most important steps toward their own success. Uh, self-handicapping is an affliction that occurs when um, primarily young people are praised too much for being something instead of for what they've done. And the uh, the research from Carol Dweck out at Stanford, she's a psychologist, underlies this. Uh, in a very important way, they uh, if you have a child and uh, you praise them for being smart all the time, oh, you're so smart, oh, look, you're so clever, you're so smart, some children, not all, but some children will begin to internalize that in a way that causes them to become afraid to put that label to the test. And so they start doing things so that they avoid ever being revealed to be the unsmart person they're afraid they might be. You just described me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think you must have overcome it because you're doing okay. <laughs> but the but that means they start doing 
self-sabotaging things. They, uh, they, they, uh, they uh, stay up uh, all night before the test, and then when they take the test, they're too sleepy to perform well. Or they, uh, they get distracted by a television show or, a, uh, a, or Facebook or something before uh, some important event. And so then when they fail the next day, they can say, oh, well, I could have succeeded, but I, but, you know, I, I, I was watching TV. Uh, or I could have succeeded, but I stayed up all night and I got sleepy, so I couldn't do my best. And it just goes around and around and around. And, of course, that's a prescription for two things. One, mediocrity, because you never perform at your best. And two, complete lack of courage to take any risks, because the biggest thing you're afraid of is being revealed to be a failure. So you never take any risks, so you don't take that chance. So learning to fail means learning to pay more attention to the process of learning and less attention to the outcome. It means being willing to take failure as an educational data point and learn from it and not feel so devastated by it uh, and uh, turn it around so that it works for you. And I use an example of uh, Roy McIlroy, the great golfer, uh, who uh, in one uh, in one golf tournament uh, a couple years ago uh, had the biggest collapse in the history of golf. In the last nine holes, he went from being something like seven strokes ahead to losing the match because he just fell apart in the last nine holes. And this guy's only 21 years old. This is a devastating loss. They interviewed him afterwards, and he said, you know, I learned some really important lessons in what happened to me today, uh, and I hope to put them to use. And in the very next tournament, he went out to the PGA Open, which is just about to run right now, and he won it. And uh, that's learning to fail because uh, you wouldn't blame him for going into uh, a cave after that monumental loss and just, you know, and saying, you know, this is it. I've, I've just completely lost my self-confidence. But instead, he went back to and said, what can I learn from that? and then use it next time out, and I, and he did. The, those negative emotions that you mentioned earlier are what come into play here. We should never be afraid to feel fear. We should never be afraid to feel dissatisfaction. Uh, those are the signals that sometimes are telling us um, uh, we need to watch out for this. Uh, we can do better than this. We're dissatisfied with this. We need to improve or we need to get out of a relationship that doesn't work. Uh, we need to change jobs if we can as soon as possible because we have a psychopath for a boss. Uh, and not being willing to feel those negative emotions often will keep you in a place that uh, is holding you back. So... Um, so, yeah, so it's like everything else, a little balance. Positive emotions, incredibly important because they help you uh, feel optimistic about the future. But negative emotions and dissatisfaction, great motivators to tell you that you need to change direction. A couple of questions in a moment I want to get to apart from the book, but already we've, we've covered material in seven of the nine chapters. But as I like to tell a lot of my guests, we want to leave them wanting more. Well, I hope so. <laughs> yeah, we'll wrap up the book conversation there. But before we sure. do, anything else you'd like others to know about the book or the last two chapters that we haven't had a chance to hit on? I think the one, one, the, the, the last couple of chapters, uh, I touch on uh, social skills and the importance of being able to relate to other people. And, um, and I think that's, of course, a subject on which I've written a couple, couple of other books. So uh, I, think, I think it's 
just one more myth about success that I try to um, explore in that chapter that's worth noting, and that is that most people think, well, you know, social skills, how to win friends and influence people. Okay, well, you have to, you know, you have to be glib. You have to be socially smooth to be successful, and, and I totally disagree. I think you have to be yourself. Uh, the most important thing you bring to a social interaction that's going to help you succeed is your credibility. And credibility doesn't come from glibness and smoothness. Credibility comes from what have you accomplished. Uh, it comes from uh, whether you're trustworthy and reliable. Uh, and it comes from how much you know and can talk about with respect to the subject and add value by bringing new ideas. So I think, uh, I think people should recognize that all different kinds of social people, all people at all different levels of social skills can be very successful. Uh, the most important thing is to recognize what your social type is and then use it uh, effectively and, and, and build on your credibility. So I think that's worth mentioning. Uh, and the just the final point is that my hope in, in writing this book and my hope in all my teaching is uh, not to tell people what success is uh, or to tell them to follow my example. My uh, entire purpose is to help people think for themselves about what their goals should be and, uh, and what their talents are. So uh, I hope the book uh, is able to reach out to people and, and provide that service to them. Well, another reason I paused after seven chapters was because that's how far I've read into the book. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> well, uh, I hope that doesn't mean it took too long to read, but I tried to make it, I tried to tell a lot of stories. So it, the book keeps moving along. So uh, give it a lot of examples. I love it. And I, I just uh, picked it up last week. Thank you to Whitney, uh, your publicist, who, by the way, is fantastic. Uh, oh, yeah. I love Whitney. Uh, really enjoy interacting with her. But yes, I am loving the book. So I highly recommend it. This show, this podcast is based on the belief that intentional and consistent reading is key to success in business and in life. And one of the mantras I often recite is leaders read and readers lead. So to that, what would you say is the single most important leadership lesson you've ever learned? Wow. Um, you have a great job. You get to ask these really, really <laughs> interesting and impossible questions. Uh, you know, uh, as a le I think I learned the most important leadership lesson uh, of my life from my father. Uh, you know, we, he was a Marine general and he was a leader of men and we did break over the Vietnam War, but we reconciled later. And I then was able to look back and realize how much I had learned from him uh, and the way that he conducted himself. And um, I'll just give you two quick uh, lessons that, that I take from his life. One is he, he said, uh, as a leader, he said, never ask your people to do anything that you either haven't already done or wouldn't do first. Mm. And I think that, uh, that that's, a, that's something a lot of, of our leaders today have forgotten. Uh, they ask other people to do the impossible. They themselves would never go near it. Um, but they expect others to go uh, and do it. And I think, I think leaders ought to internalize what it is that they've asked others to do and go there first and, uh, and show the courage to do it. So I teach a lot of Navy SEALs, a lot of people in special operations, and uh, that's one of the lessons that they exhibit in the way they conduct themselves. And I think it's, uh, I think it's crucial. The other is um, that your success as a leader will come from the trust others put in you. And uh, 
my dad, when I was about 10 or 11 years old, used to take me out every New Year's Eve. He was a, he had retired from the Marines and become the superintendent, the president of the Virginia Military Institute down in Lexington, Virginia. So that's where I uh, was in sort of middle school. And uh, on New Year's Eve, he would take me out every year uh, while I was um, uh, in that age, you know, 10, 11, 12, 13. And he had homemade... Uh, a bourbon-laced eggnog that he made every Christmas season. And he would get some mason jars and put this eggnog in it and wrap it up with a ribbon and put them in a box and put me in the car. And we would drive all around the VMI base where the school was located on New Year's Eve. And I would run in and give a jar of this eggnog to every single man or woman that was working that night. And my dad would wait from the car. I would hand off the eggnog. And um, I didn't realize it at the time, but I've come to realize that that's what leadership really is about. Mm-hmm. It's about caring about people that other people don't notice and uh, recognizing them. So, so you know, this all came home to me uh, just last October because I was down in Lexington, Virginia again, and I was very proud to be at a ceremony where they had uh, just dedicated and named a building with his name on it. And I can't help but believe that the reason they did that was not because he was a famous general, but because that's the way he treated people. And everybody at that college knew it. Wow. Name for us, uh, if you would, Richard, uh, two books uh, from the recent past that have made the greatest impression on you and why. Um, well, you know, I I have to uh, – the inspiration for everything I've written – uh, is um, a book by a psychologist named Robert Cialdini, C-I-A-L-D-I-N-I. He's a psychologist out of uh, Arizona State. And the book is called Influence, The Psychology of Persuasion. And uh, I think it's the best book about human interaction uh, from a psychologist ever. Uh, it's readable, it's true, it's reliable, it can guide you in everything from marketing to leadership, Influence the Psychology of Persuasion by Robert Cialdini. And, wow, the other sources of inspiration that I always come back to are the, are the, great, are the great texts of our culture. So I've read the Bible from beginning to end. I read it while I lived in Israel and went to the places where the events took place that the Bible talks about. And um, I, I'm, I don't consider myself a Christian per se. I don't belong to a church. Um, but I think the, of all the religions in the world, the Christians and the Jews have the best book. So uh, as a matter of inspiration, as a matter of values, as a matter of uh, storytelling, uh, it's hard to beat the Bible, and I go back to it often. So I guess I'll have to I'll rest my case on the Bible. Excellent, excellent. Well, we'll include all the resources and links we talked about in the show notes uh, for today's episode. Finally, what's the best way for folks to reach out to you? Website, social media, and share, if, if you want to, anything you're working on that's uh, coming up that you might want folks to know about. Sure. Um, well, the best way to just get more information about me is my website. So uh, that's G Richard Shell, 
dot com. So G, just the letter G, Richard, the name like Richard the Lionhearted and Shell, S-H-E-L-L, all together, grichardshell.com. And it has information on all my other books. It actually has the six lives exercise on there. So uh, people want to take that, they can do it online and get a taste, uh, as well as a little biography and uh, how to contact me. So uh, so that's probably the easiest uh, way to do that. I'm, uh, I'm in the middle of going out with a lot of uh, different uh, publicity and talks about Springboard. Uh, so that'll be coming up in the next year as I travel around the country and talk to different groups about uh, what uh, what success means to them. And so people might expect to hear from me uh, a little bit on that. And I'm working on another book, which is The Professor's lot in life. Uh, the next book, I think, is going to be called Believing in Yourself, The Foundations of Confidence. Hmm. And I expect to be bringing together research on the nature of beliefs and the nature of the self and uh, talking about what it actually means to believe in yourself and what that entails and how it relates to the feelings that we have when we're feeling self-confident. So that's the next project. I will be first in line to buy that one. (laughs) (laughs) Great. (laughs) I'll let you know. Well, the new book is Springboard, Launching Your Personal Search for Success. This uh, conversation being published on August the 20th, so that means the book is out right now. Been out for five days, so get it. I highly recommend it. Richard, thank you so much for being our guest today on the Read to Lead podcast. Jeff, it's been a real pleasure. I really enjoyed this, and and I wish you the very best. The book, once again, is Springboard, Launching Your Personal Search for Success by G. Richard Schell. It's available for free from Audible. Just go to readtoleadpodcast.com slash audible. There you can sign up for a free 30-day trial and get your free download. I suggest Springboard this week. Thank you, Richard, for being our guest. To comment on today's episode, go to readtoleadpodcast.com forward slash 008 for episode 8. Just scroll down to the bottom of the post to leave your comment. If you enjoy the show, it would mean a lot if you would rate the podcast in iTunes. Now, this helps ensure others have a better chance of finding it. It helps keep it, too, in the new and noteworthy section for these brief eight weeks that we have to be there. And if you give it a five-star rating and leave a review, I'll be sure and mention you by name in an upcoming episode as a small way of saying thanks. Speaking of which, thank you to AKT Martin, I Alex, Scott Barlow, and Connie Cotman for their five-star reviews. To rate and review the podcast, just go to readtoleadpodcast.com slash iTunes. That's readtoleadpodcast.com slash iTunes. Well, next time on the show, our guest will be Ken Siegel, author of the New York Times bestselling book, Insanely Simple, The Obsession That Drives Apple's Success. And he'll help us learn how to apply those principles to your business. That's all for this week. I hope to see you next time. Thanks so much for listening to the Read to Lead podcast. As a subscriber, we challenge you to be more than just a passive listener. Become a vital member of the community. Visit us on the web at readtoleadpodcast.com and chat with other members at facebook.com slash readtoleadnation. Until next time, remember, leaders read and readers lead.